Today is the 20th of September, and I'm here with Dr. Scott McGraw for the Story of Us podcast through APOP at The Ohio State University. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's a thrill. So my first question is, could we talk a little bit about a new book or article you recently read that struck you, something in the popular media or maybe something even academic? Uh, Sure. I think uh, one of the biggest stories is one that was announced last week or the week before last, and that was the postcranial material from Chadensis. Big, big story. You know, this is a seven million year old hominin. It's right near the split between humans and chimps, and they're arguing that there's good evidence. Some people are arguing that there's good evidence for, for bipedality, and if that's true, it's the it's the first evidence. Moves back the timeline a great yeah. deal, doesn't it? Seven million years old. So that's that's big. I mean, it, you know, they say it's, it was one of the worst kept secrets in paleoanthropology because the stuff had been found, you know, was known for 20 years, but they just never described it. But they did, and it landed in nature. And, and as these things go, you know, half the people are saying, yeah, biped, and the other half are going, nope. <laughs> There'll always be debate. Oh, it's wonderful, you know, which is why we have jobs, because so many of these questions remain unanswered. unanswered. Yeah. But that's, I mean, it's very exciting. And it's also a great lesson how you've got camps of authorities who can look at the same evidence and come to vastly different conclusions. In their analysis, yeah. yeah. It's wonderful. So my second question is, could you briefly define primatology for non-experts? What is it? What are its methods? And what can studying our closest living relatives teach us about human evolution and behavior? Oh, good heavens. All right. There's a lot. There's a lot there. Yeah, sure. Humans are primates, primates in order of mammals. And primatology is the study of, of primates. There are lots of ways that you can study primates. You can do so from a psychological standpoint, from a biological standpoint, from a philosophical standpoint, or you can study primates to answer anthropological questions, which is what I try and do. So in general, it's the scientific study of primates. And what can studying non-human primates teach us about humans and human evolution? All kinds of things. I mean, one of the points that I try and make in my classes is that if you really want to understand what it means to be human, you need reference points that aren't human. And that's where we, you know, rely on our monkey and ape and prosimian cousins to better articulate what makes us unique, what makes us human. When did some of these traits, behavioral, anatomical, appear in our lineage? And the great thing is, is that we still have these reference points that are running around. And unfortunately, there many are disappearing. But that's that's one of the, you know, from an anthropological perspective, that's, I think, one of the principal points of value is that they serve as reference points, which is what, which is what I try and do. And I'm wondering specifically for your research what the exact geographic and taxonomic animals that you're looking at are and the specific focus. Right. So I, I've been working at a field site in West Africa for 30 years it's important for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that most of the rainforest in West Africa has been removed. And the place where I work, which is a place on Ivory Coast called the Thai Forest, is one of the few mm-hmm. blocks of forest left in West Africa where the animals there are more or less living relatively undisturbed. And so we've got an entire system intact. We've got all the predators 
the forest, the, the habitat is, is still there. And so, you know, we like to think that the animals there are still behaving in quote unquote natural mm-hmm. ways. And so we can examine what selective pressures they're under. And the nice thing about this particular case is that one of the principal selective pressures is predation. And all the predators are there. So we have chimps hunting and eating monkeys, leopards hunting and eating monkeys, eagles hunting and eating monkeys, and unfortunately, an increasing number of humans. But we can see how all the different primates have responded, and they have done so in different ways. So it's a wonderful natural experiment in a more or less pristine habitat. And places like that are precious because they're becoming increasingly scarce. Right. That makes me think about how these longitudinal studies are made more difficult by human pressures. So to have a space that's, you know, somewhat pristine. No, you couldn't be more right. And and primatologists have have are are very much aware of this. And right now we're putting together a paper that we hope will land in a major outlet making that point. And it's the value of long term field sites, Uh, not just to get long term data, but also to preserve the inhabitants, because unfortunately, like other fields of study, we have to maintain a permanent presence. If we were to leave, and we've done it a couple times over the last 30 years, if we were to leave, hunters would go in and these animals are completely habituated and they could be wiped out. And so unlike archival research where we can interrupt it, we have to stay there. So even if our science is bad, the fact that we are maintaining a presence is, is helping preserve the animals there. Fascinating. I'm wondering about your teaching and your teaching methods. So when you're teaching your classes like we were talking about before, how would how can we teach undergraduate students about non-human primates and what strategies have you found most effective for kind of getting people excited or introducing new concepts or maybe even debunking myths or misconceptions? Well, the great the benefit that I have is that primates are are charismatic animals and most people have a have some idea of what a primate is, and, and they're attractive, and they, they do interesting things. We see ourselves in them. We can go to the zoo, and they can make a face, and we can make a face, and they can pick something up and throw it at us, and, and so we, they are relatable. There is, so, so in many ways, primates sell themselves, but I'd like to think that I bring a bit of energy to the classroom. I use a lot of visuals because many primates are, are aesthetically pleasing. They're fun to look at. They do interesting things. You know, you just do a little light Googling or go on social media and you'll find thousands and thousands of little clips of primates doing goofy things, which is both good and bad. But so I, I guess it's, it's, a, it's a combination of harnessing the interest that people naturally have because of some familiarity and then adding in the scientific element. You know, looking at, you know, hopefully dispelling the notion that when you look at a chimp, you say, oh, that's not a monkey. It's an ape. So that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's my task. Excellent. I wanted to ask about some recent work. You and Dr. Gatelli-Steinberg have been working on this project with Colobin Molars for a while. I'm wondering what using teeth and what that teaches us about primate behavior. So... Like, why would teeth be a focus point, and what does that study or studies like it tell us? Uh, great question. Well, first of all, we like teeth because they preserve well in the fossil record. So the things that we learn about extant teeth or the, the teeth from living extant animals, we can apply to the fossil record and infer behavior in extinct forms. I have amassed a large collection of 
primate skeletal dental material from the forest where I work. It's, it's a nice collection because, number one, we know exactly where they came from. Right. Number two, we, we have, in some cases, 30 years of data. We know what they ate, what kinds of groups they were living in, how far they were ranging, what selective pressures they were under. And so being able to sort of look at a tightly controlled collection and then map the behavior on top of that is enormously valuable. So with Dr. Gotelli Steinberg, who is an authority on, on teeth, we're sort of looking at these teeth, applying what we've known from, what we've learned from the forest to lab techniques. Of course, you know, teeth like primates were not created, they evolved, they were subjected to selective forces. I'd like to think that we've pretty much figured out what those selective forces are, including the types of foods that they eat and the material properties of those foods. And so then we take that information and we look at the, the details of the teeth to try and make sense out of differences in the bumps, differences in enamel thickness, differences, you know, those kinds of things. And then once we come up with a pretty tight story, when we find the same tooth in the fossil record, based on what we've learned about living primates, we can say there's a good chance that that extinct animal did the same thing. So have you been able to note changes or even kind of continuation in the wear patterns over oh. generations? Or how does that, how has that developed? Well, there are definitely different wear patterns between taxa. Mm -hmm. We've got three species of colobus monkeys. Even though they're closely related, they eat different things, mm -hmm. and they're, they're, they also are, are of different size. And so they wear their teeth differently. But because we know exactly what they ate, we can... Put that, right put that map, yeah, put that behavior right on there and then look at the teeth under microscopes, cut them in half, look at their development and say, ah, that's why the tooth is built that way. And would you say in this project that one side brings, like in your case, you bring the behavioral knowledge and then another side, Dr. G.S. brings the yeah. methodological knowledge yeah, and no, no, happy marriage? Or exactly right. I mean, this is the way it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. You've got folks with different skill sets with a common interest, but right. bringing different things to the table. And yeah, it's great because we've had lots of students sort of tap into the collection and use it, looking at different things, but ultimately just sort of helping understand what the larger system is doing and you know, what selective forces were causing things to move in different directions. And you can ask entirely different questions from the same set almost, right? Yeah, I'll never forget. I was in the forest one time doing my dissertation work and there was a guy there looking at the same animal who was interested in some type of social behavior. And I was quantifying positional behavior, locomotion and posture. And he just he was just shaking his head, just saying, it's extraordinary how we can be standing two feet from each other looking at the same animal with completely different goals in mind. But they complement each other. Yeah. And it shapes your perceptions because you, one person might see one thing and one person might see another. Exactly. And yep. bringing it all together. Yep. Excellent. Which, which, again, goes back to the sort of the paleoanthropological issue is you've got two groups looking at the same evidence coming up with very, very different interpretations. Yeah. Ah, anthropology. Mm. <laughs> um, I wanted to kind of pivot and ask you about what it's been like being the chair of our department. What has been the most rewarding part of that experience, and what are some roles that have been unexpected that you've had to take on or challenges or things along those lines? I would say the, the greatest benefit is that necessarily I have had to become aware of much more. I think, you know, for, for much of my career, I sat in my office and I did my own thing. But now in this role, I'm, I'm necessarily having to pay attention to much more. And I've learned a great deal about all of the different things that we're doing. And 
I'll be honest, and it's, it's my fault, but I'm, I'm so pleasantly surprised because really until, until I actually assumed this position, I, I wasn't aware of half of it. And is an enormous responsibility, and it keeps up at night, and it fills the days, but it has been a, a very pleasant, eye-opening experience. Are there administrative things that you wish you didn't know and we don't have to discuss them? <laughs> yes, and that's a hard yes. For sure. For sure. <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, but, yeah, the humanity makes it inter- interesting, doesn't it? Right, when you fill people yep. into the roles. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, that's, that's the most challenging part. For certain. But also the most rewarding. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk about recent work that you've done. Um, is there anything you want our readers to kind of know about things maybe we didn't discuss or uh, recent papers or anything along those lines? Yeah, well, I, I would take this opportunity to highlight the plight of the African primates that I study. You, you can't really be involved in research in the tropics without also being a conservationist. Right. And one of, the, one of the monkeys that I study and that is very conspicuous at our field site is a red colobus. And there are about 16 species of red colobus across Africa, and all of them are endangered. Many of them are on the brink of extinction. It's without a doubt the most endangered group of primates on the continent. And we recently put out an action plan with the IUCN to identify specific actions with budgets that need to be implemented to save these species from from extinction. just came out. I think it was, it's, it's very well done, and we hope that this raises the profile of these beautiful but highly endangered animals. Yeah. Are there some situations in this conservation effort where bringing them into captivity is not an option? Are there animals, because I know that there's some animals that are, do well under those conditions and some that do not. So. You, you nailed the problem because this is one of the primates that is unable to survive in captivity. We, we have, there are no red colobus in captivity. We don't know why. We know what many of these taxa eat, but they are extremely ecologically sensitive. So we have to preserve these habitats and, and the red colobus in them. I'd like to think that we could just go round up a bunch and put them in the San Diego Zoo, but it has just never happened. There's some primates that do very well. I mean, a close relative of the red colobus is the black and white colobus. And they're ubiquitous in zoos. Exactly. Most zoos have black and white, but the red colobus, for whatever reason, cannot cannot survive. So we, we have to focus our efforts on preserving habitat and their inhabitants. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Andrew. My pleasure. <laughs>